Today we are going to study through the book of 2 John. This is one of the shortest books in the whole Bible. In fact, the only one that is shorter than this is 3 John, <laughs> which we will study next week. And I hope I don't have to make the point that just because the book is small, it is no less inspired, authoritative, and useful than any other part of Scripture. As you can tell by the title, it was written by the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee. But as we're going to see, the letter itself does not give his name. Believe it or not, that is actually one of the ways that we know that John wrote it. John very rarely identified himself. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved in his gospel. And in the epistles, he refers to himself as the elder, if he names himself at all. It is actually the language and the emphases of his different writings that place them together. They, they overlap. You know, preachers will have similar points of emphasis that they like to talk about. John was no different, and that's how we can tell that these were all written by him. And we're going to see some of those things tonight. And of course, there's also universal church tradition that the Apostle John wrote these letters. So there's no reason to question that. And this letter, along with the other Johannine epistles, 1st and 3rd John, was written in John's old age. He was the only apostle not to die a martyr's death. And tradition has him living well into his 90s. So this is an old man writing this letter. Only he would have lived to see the church pass from the hands of the apostles and the first generation of witnesses to their disciples and the following generation. You can imagine how his concern would have grown as the church spread out and teachers and their ideas began to proliferate. His fear for the integrity of the church comes through in all three of his letters. Second John was written to urge its readers, including you, to walk in the truth that had been handed down to them from the apostles and from Christ himself. He warns us against deceivers and liars, emphasizing, as he always does, love for the brethren and obedience to the commandments of God. This letter is as timely for us as it ever was. The church today faces many false teachers, as you know, and there's no surefire way to expose and correct them anymore. The cat's out of the bag. It's really hard to get it back in. But there will always be those who walk in the truth as the Bible compels us to do. And by the grace of Almighty God, I pray that we will be found walking in the truth when the Lord returns. So let us begin by reading the first three verses together. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. The first three verses constitute the greeting of this epistle. Remember, it is, of course, a letter. It's an epistle. The author is called the Elder, which, again, typical of John. He tried not to name himself in his writings as much as possible. And it is written to the elect lady and her children. This is a little harder to understand. The two main options for understanding this are one, the elect lady is a specific woman and her actual children, and John does not name her for some unknown reason. Or number two, the lady is actually a church and the children are the members there. I think that second option is the most likely. As we will see in verse 13, there's a reference to the children of your elect sister. 
John was the elder of the church in Ephesus at this point, so this was probably their way of referring to one another. We do not know what church he was writing to. Perhaps it was one of the seven that he addressed in the book of Revelation, which he also wrote. And notice in these first three verses that the word truth appears four times in three verses. It's going to pop up again in the next verse. It is this word, aletheia in Greek, truth, that sets the tone for this letter. This is one of those words that clues us in that this is John writing, even though his name isn't on it. John used the word aletheia, truth, 46 times in all of his writings, the gospel and the three epistles and revelation. Compare that to 50 times used in the entire New Testament outside of his epistles. So he used the word truth. He talked about truth almost as much as all the rest of the authors combined. John loved contrast and opposites, darkness and light, death and life, truth and lies. And it is that last contrast that he emphasizes in 2 John. He calls Christians those, look, who know the truth and have the truth abiding in them forever. Aletheia, truth, is a distinctly Christian virtue. Christians are those who have accepted and abide in the truth about God. Jesus said in John 18, 37, he said it to Pontius Pilate, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But Pilate's rebuttal to Jesus in the next verse, you know this, was what is truth? And this uncertainty is unfortunately the position of most people in the world. There are a lot of strange ideas about truth. Postmodern ideas of truth argue that there really is no such thing as truth or that it's relative. It depends on the person. Because each person interprets reality individually, they argue, there's no such thing as objective truth. There's only perspective. There's only my truth. Many Eastern philosophies view truth as an illusion. They believe that their God, I believe it's Vishnu, but who cares, is dreaming on, as he sleeps on the lake and we're the product of his dreams. Thirdly, there are those who agree with a normal, normal view of truth, but they've limited their understanding and the scope of how they understand truth to only deal with what is material, what they can touch. If you cannot see it, taste it, test it, measure it, and quantify it, then for them it does not exist. All three of those options have cut themselves off from the biblical aletheia, the biblical truth. As Christians, we worship a God who is truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, that he was the truth. God is the I am who has always existed. He is the truest thing in all of existence because everything that is has come from him. He is the only self-existent one. God does not lie. God is the revealer of truth. The skeptic believes there is no way to know anything definitive about God, heaven and hell, or even morality if you want to push it. But we believe that God himself has preserved that knowledge through his word and through his people. In verse 2, John calls this the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. This is why we are taught to speak the truth. Ephesians 4.25 tells us to put away falsehood. Just as God and his word are true, we are to be true in our lives and with our words. 
And according to John here, it is in truth and love that all the blessings of God are to come. Grace, mercy, and peace come to those, he says, who are in the truth, who abide in that ancient aletheia of God. Those who live lives of deceit and who practice lies, they will never enter into the joy of the Lord. Least of all people who tamper with the gospel of Jesus Christ, who himself is the truth. The remainder of this letter will be John exhorting the church to walk in that truth and warning them against those who would corrupt the church with lies. It is all about the truth. We are concerned as Christians with what is, just as God is. And John is going to show us how to live that way. So let us read the next three verses, four through six. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. This is the beginning of the body of the letter, which we'll go down to verse 11. And John begins, as most of the other epistles do, with a positive exhortation. He commends the church for walking in the truth and encourages them to love one another. In a moment, he will warn them. But for now, he's praising them for doing the right thing. So perhaps there was no specific crisis at hand, but he was trying to head off trouble that might have been heading their way. It seems that John had seen some members of this church recently. We know from 3 John, he was very involved in the coordination of missionaries. And it stands to reason that as the last living apostle, he would have had a lot of interaction with folks from other churches. If John was still alive, I'd want to go see him. I can tell you that much. Probably some members of this church were passing through Ephesus, or he came across them in another town, and he was glad. He rejoiced to see their faithfulness. This was probably the occasion for writing the letter, or at least the incident that got him thinking, I really got to write a letter to that church. Now, what he was glad to see was that they were walking in the truth. This is a favorite phrase of John. He uses it multiple times. In 3 John verse 4, he writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And he says here that it was the Father who commanded us to do this. This is similar to what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God has prepared works for us that we should walk in them. God has commanded us to walk in the truth. Walking in the New Testament is a very common metaphor for the Christian life, one that we still use today. We refer to the Christian walk. The word itself is nothing special. Sometimes you look up the Greek and there's nothing really there. The word is parapateo. It's where we get the word peripatetic, which means something that can walk. By that word, the authors mean that with every step we take, we are to be in obedience to God. There is not an inch of ground that we cover that is not to be done in the name of Jesus. The Bible compares our life to a walk or a journey or a race often. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, you know these verses, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The Christian life is a journey. Really, all of life is a journey. You move on down the road of life until you reach your ultimate destination, either heaven or hell. And to reach that celestial city, like in Pilgrim's Progress, you have to take the hard road, the narrow way. Narrow roads are not highways. Narrow roads are usually not well-traveled. Sometimes they're not even paved under. And why bother? No one comes down this road anyway. Often they'll go through the wilderness or wind up into the mountains. You don't see a lot of wide roads way up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, for example, where I'm from. They're hard roads. And that's the sort of road that we travel as Christians. It's a road of obedience and persecution and purification. And almost everyone who starts on the narrow road will leave along the way. But what makes this road worth traveling is that it's the only true road. It may not have guardrails. It may not have street lights. It might be full of potholes and steep inclines, but it's the only road that's going to get you there. Don't ever be pressured by the fact that the majority of people do not believe the Christian message. Jesus told us that this would be the case. The world is under the deception of sin. They're believing a lie. We are to be the ones who walk in the truth. As that old song says, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. That's what John was so overjoyed to see. That these Christians were still following Jesus. Despite the perils of the road, they were still going. Are you walking in the truth? Or has the narrow road become uncomfortable for you? Maybe you haven't left it yet, but you've pulled over to the side and you've called the Department of Transportation to come out and fix that pothole before you keep driving. Brothers and sisters, the way of obedience to Christ is hard and lonely most of the time. In the beginning, it's easy. Lots of people have come that way. Lots of people have started. You can get your car through because enough people have been there to clear out all the debris and the obstacles. But there comes a point where you've got to get out and walk on your own two feet. The bridge is out, so you've got to clamber across that ravine. The snow has fallen, and now you've got to trudge. There's a cliff in the way, and you've got to climb. That's exactly what Jesus taught us about the way of truth. Along the way, there will be people who abandon you, situations that don't pan out the way you hoped, and scrapes and bruises too numerous to count. Well, why do we keep going? Because it's the only way to get there. This is the road that leads to life. And we know that because God himself has seen to it that we can find it. He has preserved the knowledge of the truth. He has set our feet on the path. And sometimes when you veer off the wrong way, he'll gently and kindly put you back on the path. You know that's true. That's the good news. According to verse 2, the truth abides in you. You can keep going because God is with you and will be with you forever, you see. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep living as if the word of God was true because it is. And in the end, you will enter into that narrow little gate into the heavenly city of God. And are you going to care about the trials of your journey then? No. Now, you might say, well, that's all well and good, Tyler, but that's just a metaphor. How exactly do I walk in the truth? Well, I'm so glad you asked, because John tells us exactly that in these verses. 
Walking in the truth, according to this passage in 2 John, consists of three things. Number one, love one another. Number two, obey God's commandments. And number three, believe in the gospel. John works through that sequence to make his main point. So this three-part explanation, it's similar to a tree, a tree called walking in the truth. We'll use that as our guide as we go through this. First, how do we walk in the truth? First, we are to love one another. This is the fruit on the tree. Because John knows he's writing to mature Christians who are walking in the truth, he begins with what you could call the final stage, because they get the beginning part. He's going to go to the end, the part that they would be concerned with. Walking in the truth should result in loving one another. This is another big emphasis of John in all his writings, which makes sense because it's what Jesus said in John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus, of course, repeated that multiple times. Paul wrote in Galatians 5.14, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is treating someone else like you would treat yourself. Choosing the highest good for another person regardless of what it costs you. So many of our interactions are really schemes to get something. We spend time with certain people based on what we can get out of them. Business connections, social status, romantic connections, or maybe just a good time. You think hanging out with this person will lead to a lot of fun. If we think of people like that, though, as objects to be used for our benefit, that will affect how we treat them. We won't be interested in who they are outside of the category that we've put them in. And if they no longer fulfill that role, if you're no longer romantically engaged with this person, if you're no longer getting those business connections, if it turns out that they're not that fun after all, you drop them. But real love looks to the soul of a person. It seeks to understand them and do what is best for them. Not just to have nice feelings, but to do what ought to be done for them. Jesus told us that that love, that sincere affection, brotherly kindness, was to be the marker of his people. John 13, 35. Walking in the truth will lead to love. Because look at what God's done for us. Look at who God is. Jesus died on the cross out of love. So how could we do any less to other people? And if we truly understand who God is, that he is a trinity of persons engaged in eternal, loving harmony, that will teach us to love one another regardless of status, regardless of the benefit to ourselves. So that's the fruit of love. That's the first thing. The second part of walking in the truth is to keep God's commandments. He says it in verse 6, that we must walk, there's that word again, according to his commandments. Obedience to the commandments of God is the trunk of the tree. It is the bulk of the growth and it supports the fruit that is born. It is also the part of the tree that nobody gets particularly excited about. But without it, there could be no branches, no foliage, and no fruit. The commandments of God are to be the controlling roadmap for our lives, the trunk of the tree. Now, some folks just want to write this off. And say it's all about loving God, not obeying God. You ever hear that one before? It's not about obeying, it's about love. John had probably heard this one before because he said in 1 John 5, 2, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. I love God. Well, do you keep his commandments? No, then you don't love God according to the Bible. And he finishes that verse, 
His commandments are not burdensome. That last phrase is so important. We make a mistake if we think of God's commandments as a burden that we have to carry. Oh, it's so hard. What commandment has God given that is not for our good and the good of others? Is not God's design for marriage way better than constant divorce in search of emotional and sexual pleasure? Is God's commandment to tell the truth not the best or at least the least stressful way to live? Can you imagine having to live a life without having to remember all the lies you told? And the world can make all the movies they like about how money corrupts us, but we actually live lives of generosity and giving to ensure that nothing we own ends up owning us. If we think that God's commandments are a burden, what we are showing is that we are still selfish. We want to do things our way. We are so good at dignifying our fleshly lusts, aren't we? We write a poem about it, or we write an academic paper about it, about why we have to want this. Or we just scream so loud about it that people stop bothering us. But God knows how life is to be lived, and he's shown us the best way. It may be a list of do's and don'ts to you, but I'll tell you what, I kind of appreciate a cheat sheet for life, <laughs> and it's called the Bible. Walking in the truth is a constant discipline of obeying God and his word. We have to learn the Bible to know what it says and then to correct our own ideas when we find out that we were wrong. If you read the Bible and you just start disagreeing with a bunch of stuff, then what's the point? Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If God is the true God, then his word is law and his word is good. It only makes sense that we should try to walk in it. Third and finally, walking in the truth begins by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the root of the tree. It all comes from the death and resurrection of God's son. John often refers to the story and the truth about Jesus as what was heard from the beginning. You hear that phrase a lot, as we see in verse six, actually. Why would we bother to do any of this? Because the gospel is true. What is the gospel? It is the good news that comes from the story of Jesus. And Jesus summed it up himself at the end of the gospel of Luke. Luke 24, verses 46 through 47. Here's the gospel. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. First, there is the foundation of the Old Testament. It is written that God has always maintained contact with men and that he promised that one day he would make an end of sin through the promised one, the Christ. Second, the Son of God became a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Christ, who lived among us without sin. Third, he died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for sins. Fourth, he rose from the dead on the third day in victory over death. And fifth, those who repent and believe in him can receive the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life through the risen Lord Jesus. Those are the basic facts of the gospel. And they form the reason and motivation for everything that we do as Christians. That is the truth in which we walk. The aletheia of God. The truest of the true. This, according to John, is what has been handed down to us from the beginning Without this, you're not even on the path to life. It all starts here. You ever have somebody call you up and they say, yeah, I think I'm almost there. And you say, well, did you pass that landmark that I told you about? 
uh, no, I didn't pass that one, but I think I'm almost there. And you're like, well, if you didn't pass that, then you're not almost here. It's like that with the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel, then you're not on the path. This is the entrance. It is the door. The roots of the tree are the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ, honestly believed. Because that is true, we obey the commandments, the trunk of the tree, and we love one another, the fruit of the tree. That's walking in the truth. You want to know how to walk in the truth? Believe in the gospel of Jesus, obey the commandments of God and his word, and love one another. Before we move on, I want you to note something here, the collective aspect of these verses. John uses words like we and us throughout this passage. He wants this church, wherever it was, to join him on that narrow road and to continue walking in the truth. We are reading, let this trip your mind for a little bit. We are reading the same exhortation that has been read in churches around the world for thousands of years, ever since the day it came from the pen of the apostle John, the son of Zebedee. John called the recipients of this letter elect. That is the Greek word eklektos. It comes from two words, ek meaning out of, and lektos coming from the word that means to call. So called out would be an overly literal way to put that. God has chosen you, elected you to be on his team. And we are in the company of the rest of those who have been called to be on his team. We ought to feel so humbled and excited to think that we have been sovereignly handpicked by God to be in the congregation of the saints with John and Paul and Athanasius and Augustine and Luther and Wesley and Spurgeon and Billy Graham. We were chosen specifically just like they were. It's pretty cool. And this, what we're talking about tonight, is what the elect of God have always done. This is what was from the beginning. In the book of Hebrews, after going through a long list of faithful servants to God, the author says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We must keep walking on the narrow road, running the race. There have been great men and women who have gone before us. While Christ is our ultimate motivation, the example of those who have gone before should compel us to honor their memories by our efforts. Now, you may think you have a better way to live. You don't have to do any of that old-time traditional religious stuff. But the trial has been made for thousands of years. Those who have come to the end and made it through the narrow gate are those who have walked in the truth, the gospel, the commandments, and agape love. As John said at the beginning, grace, mercy, and peace only come to those who walk in the truth. If you want what they got, you got to do what they did. Walk in the truth. And then when you come in the glory and you're in the company of those great men and women, you won't have to be ashamed because you walked the same path they did. Well, that's the positive exhortation from John. Now let's read down to verse 11 as the tone changes from encouragement to warning. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Oof. <laughs> Obviously, the tone of these verses is very different to the ones that preceded it. Because the letter is so short, you can feel that impact a little stronger. John is warning these people, and us by extension, about those who are not walking in the truth and are out to corrupt those who do. He gives us a couple markers to look for, and he does not mince words about who these people are. You'll see as we go through this that the sequence we went through before is reversed in the lives of these people. Rather than their lives being built on truth, they are built on lies and deception, which is the opposite of everything that we're living for. Not everyone is of the truth. Not everyone is sincere in their obedience to Christ. There are those with divided loyalties who do not accept the truth of God. They do not accept the aletheia of God. And John makes it very clear that these are not just brothers with a different opinion, but he calls them deceivers and the antichrist. He says their works are wicked and that we should not even say hello to false believers such as these. That word for greeting is kairain. It's how people in Greek say hello. Don't even give them your hello. Consider John's position as the last remaining apostle. He's growing older. He's watched a new generation take over the leadership of the church. And he has seen the first wolves begin to tear at the flock of God. And he knows that more are on the way. People probably treated John in some cases like a doddering old man. <laughs> there were some who were saying, the apostles gave us a good start, but it's time for a new direction. We've got to build on what they gave us. Heresies were springing up. And John knew he was about to go home to be with the Lord. For that reason, this gentle elder who in his other letters called people beloved and my little children. For this point, he roused up a little of that old son of thunder attitude for this letter. We have seen that truth is the central virtue of 2 John. And John has told us to walk in the truth. And he contrasts that with many deceivers who are on the prowl. These kinds of people are characterized by deception and lies. We make a huge mistake when we assume that everyone is acting in good faith and really believes the truth. There are people who deliberately come into the church with the intent to deceive. They want to change the doctrine. They want to change the commandments. They want to conform everyone to their own image. They want to heap up wealth and power for themselves. And in order to achieve those goals, they will lie, masquerade, and otherwise deceive until they can get into a position of influence to propagate their own falsehoods. Look at that word in verse 7. John calls them the Antichrist. That is a loaded word. So let me read John's own explanation of it, because immediately we've got thoughts running through our heads. In 1 John 2.18, he says, As you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. The antichrist is a prophetic figure in the Bible. The book of Revelation especially details how he will rise to power in the last days after the rapture and lead the whole world away into destruction by the worship of himself. The Bible calls him in various places the antichrist, the beast, the man of perdition, the Assyrian. There's other names. John is not saying that every false Christian is the Antichrist with a capital A. 
but that they do the same work that he will do in miniature by drawing people away from the truth. The Antichrist, if you read your Bible, is empowered by Satan, the father of lies. And so anyone who traffics in lies in the church may be considered to be an Antichrist, according to John. Hard to say it much stronger than that. Of course, the antidote to a lie is the truth. If Christians are walking in the truth, in the manner we just described, then a liar is not going to be able to get her hooks in. But we must know that these people are out there doing the work of the devil, regardless of whether they realize that it's devilish work or not. John's attitude here sets us an example. Neville Chamberlain was applauded in the 1930s and 40s because he was trying to make peace with Hitler. But now we look back on him as a world-class fool. Making nice with everyone does not mean you are godly. It might mean that you are deceived. I, as a pastor, have a special responsibility in this area. I am to guard the flock and help you walk in the truth. And I do no sheep any favors by trying to domesticate the wolves when they show up. It would be a bad shepherd who tried to take the wolf and teach him to sit, stay, play dead, roll over. The sheep are not going to like that very much. It's not a good shepherd. So we have to deal with it. We have to know that it's coming. And how are we to know when someone is an antichrist or a deceiver in the church? The foundational marker that John gives us in verse 7 is that they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This was a very popular early church heresy called docetism. It comes from the word for appearance, so appearancism. That Jesus Christ was not a real person. He only appeared to be a real person. Or that he was a spirit or just an idea. Not a lot has changed, really. <laughs> we use different words, but it's the same stuff. Can you imagine how frustrating it must have been for John to hear people teaching things like that? <laughs> he knew Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He laughed with Jesus. He saw him after his resurrection. He knew the truth. So he was not interested in the good ideas of people who started by denying that truth. It's like, I don't care how great your ideas are. If you say that Jesus wasn't a real person, you're out of line. You're not of the truth because I know the truth. Every heresy that has ever come down the pike has tried to mess with the truth about Jesus. We were warned. We learned before that three-step sequence of walking in the truth, the tree, remember? If we work that sequence backwards, starting at the roots instead of the fruit, you can see that a denial of the truth does not lead to the same outcome as many people want to claim, right? doesn't matter what you believe. We all end up at the same place. That's not true. It leads to wicked works, as John says in verse 11. So let's see this. The root of walking in the truth, number three, was to believe the gospel. A deceiver in the church will not believe the gospel. Back then, people were claiming that Jesus was just a spirit or an idea, not the Son of God made flesh. That idea is still around, but there are other forms of that lie as well. Believe it or not, there are people who deny everything about God, everything about the Bible and Jesus, who still attend church and even preach in the pulpit. Lots of people who have social or political ideas try to take hold of the church as an organizing institution and couldn't care less about the gospel. Or they say that the gospel is offensive and oppressive and they want to eliminate all talk of sin and hell and blood and death. 
Sometimes a man has a scientific bent, and he thinks he's clever by proving that miracles are not natural phenomena. Well, congratulations, Captain Obvious. We know that. That's why they're called miracles. You ever hear that? Somebody tries to say, well, people don't just rise from the dead. It's like, yeah, that's why we believe this, because people don't, but he did. It's kind of a big deal. Or they attack the scriptures with outmoded dating methods, or they try to erode the foundation of creation. Whatever the case, they are out to pull people away from simple faith in Christ. Some people, they just want to spiritualize the gospel. They tell the story as a great symbol, and they shake their finger at those horrid fundamentalists who actually believe their Bibles. <laughs> You've heard this one. Christians, you don't understand the value of literary myth. There's no need to actually think it's true. It's just myth. It's just legend. It can teach us some good lessons. Well, Peter sort of spoke for all of us in 2 Peter 1.16 when he said this. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There are people that have made their entire living out of explaining how the Bible is a cleverly devised myth. And they think that they're doing us a favor by saying it's clever. But Peter comes out and says, I didn't make this up, you guys. I saw this. We have the eyewitness testimony to the truth of the gospel. Aletheia, you guys. To say otherwise erodes our foundation. It's the whisper of the devil. Did God really say? You cannot be a Christian if you do not believe the gospel. I know that sounds obvious. But John warned us, and we can now see that there are those who do not believe and yet still want to be considered Christians, or even pastors, or at least have a voice in this world. If someone rejects the coming of Jesus and all that goes along with that, they're servants of the liar. Once a person has rejected the roots of the gospel, next step, they will disregard the commandments of God. This was that second step. Remember the sequence of walking in the truth. This is the trunk of the tree, the supporting structure. It might be big and strong, but you rip out the roots and the trunk will collapse. John speaks of those who go on ahead of the teaching of Christ. That word is proago. It literally means to go before. In this context, you might say they go too far. So many clever people say we ought to think for ourselves and evaluate the commandments of God one by one to see if we can verify them for ourselves. The most insidious method of this is to try to take a very simplistic understanding of the New Testament, maybe a couple verses out of the Sermon on the Mount, make them the most important thing, and then apply that to the rest of the Bible. God told us in no uncertain terms to abstain from sex outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Well, that doesn't seem very loving, and didn't Jesus tell us that we have to love each other? I guess we don't have to keep that commandment. The Bible says to let no unclean speech come out of your mouth, but only what is good for edification, that it should be full of grace, seasoned with salt. People say, well, we're supposed to redeem all things for God's glory, so I'm going to redeem every curse word in the dictionary for God's glory. Paul said in Galatians 5.13 in answer to this, you were called the freedom brothers. Everybody wants to go, yay, and stop right there. You were called the freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. If you do that, John says, you do not have God or his son. Some folks will even shrug that off and say, well, we have to create morality for ourselves. The commandments mean nothing anymore. God has taught us how to create our own morality. 
These people can conceive of nothing higher than themselves, and so they've made themselves the dictators of right and wrong. They took Satan's bait, and now they think that they're gods, and they can make their own rules. They reject the commandments of God. Number three is where this gets tricky, the fruit of love. Folks will argue that they can reject the gospel and reject commandments and still bear the fruit of love. Not if you've ripped up the tree by the roots, you can't. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. But if you don't believe that, if there's no God, there's no Christ, there's no cross or empty tomb, there's no Bible, there's no Holy Spirit, why would you love anybody? The world can only maintain this fiction for so long. Love, that is love for a neighbor, love for a stranger, even for an enemy, is a heavenly thing. It's not normal. Before long, even those who scream about love and tolerance the most will become hateful, angry judges of everyone they see in the name of love. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And if you reject his gospel and you reject his commandments, you will have no love in your heart either, except for that natural love, which Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, come on, even they do that. Love is supposed to be greater than that. We as Christians traffic in truth, in aletheia. We do not follow myths, but the ancient truths of God, the gospel, and his Bible. Because of that, we live lives of love, faithfulness to God and each other. We cannot endure those who reject the truth at the beginning because we know where that ends. It ends in human sacrifice and the concentration camp and the lynch mob. John tells us in no uncertain terms not to associate with those who deal in this stuff, not even to greet them on the street. Let them go about their wickedness, keep the church pure, and let God bring his judgment upon them in his good time. It's very easy to point fingers and blast those on the outside who would come in and wreak havoc. And I try my best not to ever name names unless I really need to, because if I get in the habit of doing that, that's going to be a very long ministry for me. I'm a young guy. I've got a lot of ministry if the Lord tarries. I can't waste my time calling out every bad egg, especially if it has nothing to do with us here. I do not mean to minimize the very real threat that we just read about, but it's verse 8 where you ought to spend your time in your meditation and your prayer. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we, some translations have, what you have worked for. It amounts to the same thing. But that we may win a full reward. Watch yourself. We've got to keep an eye on them. And John's like, watch yourself, buddy. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We are all susceptible to these deceptions or we would not have been warned. Walking in the truth is an active life, not a passive one. Repeatedly, the Bible tells us, do not be deceived. God does not waste his breath. He knows that we are easily fooled. Our problems began when Eve was deceived by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And that led to Adam, who was not deceived, but willingly went along with her sin out of a misplaced sense of loyalty. The devil won that skirmish, and he's not given up that strategy. Jesus said in John 8, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. And one of the greatest lies he succeeded is in telling us that he does not exist. But we have the inspired word of the truth-telling God who reminds us not to be fooled. How do you watch yourself? Two very simple things to do. The first is to do what John says and keep this stuff away from you. 
Don't invite them into your house, they says. Now, maybe you would never invite a false teacher into your house, but do you buy their books? Do you watch their programs? Do you listen to their music? You need to know who is influencing you, and you need to curate who has the right to speak to you and your family. I think it's hilarious that the YMCA in Trustville is across the street from a Waffle House. I'm sitting there when we're open and you're on the treadmill or you're, you're doing the weights and right out the window is Waffle House and they're having a sale on hash browns. And even if you get past that, before you get on the freeway, you have to pass a Taco Bell, a McDonald's and a Wendy's. Now, yes, it's possible to avoid those temptations. You can, but if you set your life up like that, you're going to fall eventually. There's going to be one of those days where you're like, forget it. I'm getting a Big Mac. <laughs> Don't set up your life like that. Oh, I'm right here and I'm going to keep my family safe in the spirit. I'm just going to set up all these traps around everybody. It's okay. We know where they are, so we won't step in them. It's not very wise. That's the first thing. Keep away from that stuff. And number two, don't just stay away from lies. Immerse yourself in the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul told Timothy to do that. I love it. Immerse yourself. John wrote in verse 9 that whoever abides in the teaching is in fellowship with God. That word abide is meno. It means to continue or stay. Keep going. If we're on a path, if we're on a journey, keep going. Don't tell yourself you've learned enough. Dive deeper into the truth. The solution is more of Jesus. And this does not mean, by the way, hear me on this, Immersing yourself in the truth does not mean immersing yourself in online blogs and videos and Facebook groups where grumpy Christians get together and rant about all these false teachers they hate. That only makes for carnal anger, not the love of the Spirit. Don't just fill your head. You've got to fill your heart with prayer, with the Word, with fasting and fellowship with Christians who are more mature than you. If you've all got the same problems, you need to get some folks that can help lift you up. Watch yourself, Christian. The devil traffics in lies, so be on the lookout for them. You are of the truth, and therefore you must know the truth so that you can spot the lies when you see them. And sometimes it's tough to tell. Maybe you cannot tell if the roots are rotten or not. Well, look at the trunk. Are they keeping the commandments? Is it starting to fracture? And if that's still unclear, check the fruit. Matthew 7, 18 says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You always want to start by checking if they believe the gospel. If you're not sure, you should wonder why you're not sure, first of all. But if you're not sure, check the, check the trunk. Are they keeping the commandments? And if you're still not sure, check the fruit. What's the fruit being born out of their life? And I'll say this too. Perhaps it's best that we stay solidly within what we know to be true without chasing after the new and exciting or the weird and the edgy. The church has a bad habit of falling for that. Somebody comes out with a new, cool, edgy way of putting things and everybody goes after them. And then a few years later, it turns out, oh, they were heretics this whole time. Whoops, should have known. I think we should be slow to absorb some of these things. Stay in line with what you know to be true. Stay in line with the fellowship of the elect that we talked about a minute ago. This is a spiritual battle. And if you understand that, the rest of this becomes that much more important, doesn't it? Listen, guys, it's not just about being right. And it's not just about keeping things the way we like them either. It is life and death. It is truth and falsehood. Walk in the truth, 
But watch yourself that you do not get lost on the narrow road that leads to life. Well, let's finish up now and read the last two verses, 12 and 13. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. I'm right there with you, John. The children of your elect sister greet you. Those verses are sweet, but they're also kind of ironic (laughs) considering our present situation. I've felt the exact same way during this quarantine. And John ends this letter quickly. He's not like Paul who drags it all out, right? He's getting it done, getting it quick. He's hoping to come and see the church face to face. And so he sends the greeting of the sister, the church that is with him, probably Ephesus, as I said. Walking in the truth does not have to be a solo activity. Aren't you glad? Every Christian has an individual relationship with Christ, but we're all on the same team. We are all elect together by the foreknowledge of God. It can be hard to watch yourself because you've got blind spots and you think everything's great. But if you have other truth walkers around you, they can help keep an eye on you. That's why even the best athletes in the world have coaches because the coach can watch. And even though he might not be able to do the thing that the player is doing, he can tell him what he's doing right and what he's doing wrong. This is what the church is for. To show that kind of supportive, sometimes tender, sometimes tough love for one another. And we're separated now, but it will not last forever. I hope that when we finally do come together that we'll have learned a little something about the insufficiency of digital contact, about the importance of human interaction. I think we got that already though, but I think it's just being driven home a little bit now. But in the meantime, guys, we can still love on each other by checking in, taking the time to take an interest in one another. John wanted to see them face to face, but he couldn't yet. So he wrote a letter. We want to be face to face, but we can't yet. So send a text or a video, make a phone call, or actually send a letter. That might be kind of cool. We're all walking the same road. It's hard, but it doesn't always have to be lonely. Support one another in that. And that's the book of 2 John. It's short, but it's potent. We are people of the truth. Aletheia. We are planted in it. We grow by it. We walk in it. In the truth alone, there is grace, mercy, and peace. The truth teaches us to love, to obey God's commandments, to stay rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's really all about him, isn't it? There are others who want to make it all about them or all about something else, but they're deceivers and liars. Let them pass, and you keep your eyes on Jesus. And I'll say, there always have been and there always will be plenty of deception to go around. It can make us angry. It can make us afraid. But really, all it ought to do is drive us closer to the Lord. If all of your impassioned defense of the truth does not bring you closer to Jesus, what have you really gained? When there's a snake in the garden, don't try to argue with it. Go to your good father and ask him to deal with it. Because the father of lies is no match for the Lord of truth. And we are his people, his elect, his truth walkers.